Hello, mate. How are you? Hello. How are you? Good. So this is my first ever podcast today, and I'm going to explain to some of the listeners out there what we're going to talk about and why we're talking about it. But to really start us off, I'm going to explain my life as I know, as I remember it, and as I as I come through the whole mental health battle and why I feel like I had a mental health issue and I still have mental health issues to this date. And I reckon a lot of it's brought down to childhood. Would you probably agree that a lot of your your childhood memories were dealings with your mental health oh 100% um i think trauma is um, underplayed not understood most people are going around their life wondering why they struggle with, with dealing with certain things but i think the majority of it it really goes back to our childhood oh i agree 100% so a little bit about myself and Harry who is part of the Sweet Spot um, podcast and also the Sweet Spot coach um, we both grew up in very different environments me I grew up with uh, with you know in England and I was born in 1987 I was born in Hastings which if nobody knows about Hastings it's just a quiet seaside town and these seaside towns turn into criminal havens for um, county line gangs to smuggle drugs in, all sorts. And unfortunately, my mum was caught up into drugs and, you know, alcohol, poor lifestyle, poor living. And as a very, very small child, I experienced and saw things that no child should ever see. Um when I was about five or six years old, I was pretty much left to my own devices. My mum would go off to get absolutely high or drunk or and my dad was not in the scene. They had both had very poor childhoods themselves. Um, and as a small child, I seen, you know, I saw my mum get her finger cut off, stabbed over 20 times. Uh, her skull got fractured by a drug dealer that thought that she stole his drugs. Um, he jumped through a, a single plane glass window and threw me across the room at five, five years old. I was absolutely terrified. And I think a lot of my trauma stems from childhood abuse from not only my family, but also growing up in a rough area where I wasn't a rough human being. Would you sort of relate to any of that sort of stuff? Well, I mean... I mean, Phil, to be honest with you, I mean, <laughs> no child has to go through that. Yeah. Um, but if I can just ask you a question. Yeah. At the time, did you think that was abuse? No, at the time, I thought everybody was, you know, I thought all children were left alone to do their own thing. I thought all children were allowed to stay up until two in the morning and watch horror films. And I, I, I was one of those kids that, I was a, ter- a little terror for a reason. I, you know, at five year olds, I'll go around and smash someone's window, um, or I'll go and do this because I was, I had no rules, I had no, no structure, no upbringing, no, no one telling me I couldn't do this or I couldn't do that. And if I did overstep the line, I'll get a massive hiding for it. Even at five years old, I remember 
getting absolutely beaten black and blue by my mum or my or my uh, stepdad at the time. I mean, that's horrific in itself. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I know I've, we've touched on some of the stuff that you've gone through it, it, together, um, and maybe just explain a little bit about your story, and then we'll go back to my story. Um, and we'll go from there. So I, I understand that you didn't grow up in England. You grew up in a different country. Oh, of course. I mean, I was born in Malawi. Um, if you're to look at statistics, the um, death rates are really high. I think at the time I was growing up, um, I thought I had a bloody brilliant fantastic life yeah yeah i honestly thought i had the most fantastic life yeah you know um it's quite interesting um some of the traumas to be honest with you for a long time i thought there was nothing wrong with my life yeah Um, i think my sort of first realization of trauma if i were to go back maybe i was three years old Mm. And um, you know, uh, it's not too dissimilar. I don't think even where you're coming from really makes a difference. No, I think what it is is that when you're a child, because you're supposed to be protected by your parents, isn't it? Yeah, you 100%. know, I mean, they're supposed to be the the guiding factor into your life, especially at early ages. You know, you look up to your family, and if they're doing wrong things, you don't know that they're wrong, so. You think that's normal? Um, 100% feel. Because when I say I was three years old, it wasn't like I was being beaten or anything like that. All I remember is listening to my mum and dad fight. Yeah. And then I started to watch them fight, you know. Um, what, physically? like they Physically. Yeah, not, yeah. Uh, not my mum my wasn't fighting back. My mum is only four foot eleven. And I mean, my mum would hate to hear this because, to be honest with you, she swept it under the carpet. Yeah. You know, she, you know my mum is one of the most resilient human beings that I've ever come across. So when I hear about your mum, it's the complete opposite what my mum was. Yeah. My mum, um, so if you think of African culture, um, my parents got married at a very, very young age, you know, um, so my mum and dad met in secondary school. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... And mom... then they were married after that, or...? No, no, it wasn't like that. Okay. So it was very simply, you're growing up in Africa, and and this is where I, I like what you said about, you know, maybe your parents weren't even... We were never even ready to be parents. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean... I've heard my mum's story and I've heard my my dad's story of their abuse when they were younger. So what they done to me wasn't abuse to them. That was that was okay. You know what I mean? Compared to what they went through when they were younger, it yes. was ten times worse. So they, whenever I was upset or anything like that, was like I'll give you something to be upset about if you don't shut up. You know, it was always, you know you're in a good state don't don't cry about it don't you know don't whinge about your life because i had it worse than you that's their 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 mentality um, i mean that's so painful because because as a child you're expecting to be protected i mean 
for me, I look at my my parents, for example. My my dad was in a family of ten children, and he was a fifth born. Wow. My mom was in a family of eight, and she was, I believe, number five as well. So in that context, and I'm thinking, you're talking about Africa, one of the poorest countries in the world. Yeah. My mother, especially, I think her story is a little bit more harrowing. I think her father died when she was 12. Oh, wow. And she was sent off with her brother to a relative because her mom couldn't look after her. And where she went, she was basically used for slave labor, you know, by her uncle, whoever it is that she was she was sent to live with. And then you have my father and the story Do you think she was she was physically assaulted when she was younger? Oh my mum will not talk about that, but I guarantee you that there was physical assault and I guarantee you that where she was sent to a relative to raise her because her father died at, when she was 12, that would not have been pleasant. No. And, and do you think that's why she kind of normalised, probably normalised, you know, maybe your dad's physical side and the arguing? Do you, do you think maybe that's why she swept it under the, the carpet? Is because it's part of her everyday, it's part of African everyday life for a woman, women, right? Um, you know, it... Do you think that's part of it? I think there's a sense of that. Yeah. But one of the things I've always remembered my mum saying, I, I asked her uh, um, uh, when I was older, I was like, why did you not leave dad? You know? Yeah. Uh, because of the physical abuse. Um, the, um, I remember her saying, you know, I went to my mum that, you know, this thing wasn't going great. And my mom said to me, that's marriage. You've just got to put up with it. Yeah, it's life. Yeah. You know? so, <laughs> so so, if you think about it, someone who's got married really young, um, she's, first of all, um, uh, she, uh, she, uh, she had to stop school because she, she had become pregnant. Yeah. And um, not with me, but my 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 older brother and um and then she has to leave her child with her mother and then she has to go back to school to finish her teacher training and then she has to come back and then restart a relationship with my father and if you know anything about africa and if you know anything about you know politics and no, just, just the, just the, essentially, just the way the country was, you know. If you look at poverty, if you look at a country like Malawi, for example, I don't know how far behind in terms of technology, in terms of uh, just well-being, is behind, for example, the UK. You know, the so I'm like I'm in a, this place. It's a predicament because I think the kind of trauma that she's faced in, you know, her father dying young, her being sent um, to um, um, to live with a relative. And then, she, and this is what I find incredible about my mother, is that she then fights through all of that, gets pregnant, leaves her child with her, her mom, and then 
completes our education as a, a wow. teacher training. You know, I'm, and I'm thinking, how did she actually, how did she have the resolve to do that? Because if I was to show you, like, even if you see in 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 what in the context of Africa, the kind of place that she grew up. She grew up in the mud hut. Yeah, yeah. I slept in there. I slept on the floor in my <laughs> grandmother's place, you know. And I'm thinking, the resilience of this woman, I mean, that time she must have been a young lady, if you, if you, if you get my drift. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then... 100%, you know, and young ladies today, to compared to young ladies back then, like, completely different, you know. Completely different. Yeah. You know, so I think... And she had that resource to go and better herself educate herself and and push through despite being in you know the situation she's in and would you say from remembering all of that obviously that has a massive effect on your your adulthood and uh would you say you had abandonment issues or 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 the (laughs) feeling the feeling of you know of uh of of what happened when you were younger did it carry over do you feel I, there's no doubt about it in my mind, Phil. There's no doubt about it because yeah. I'm only remembering this now because we're having this conversation. Exactly. Oh, that's what I. The same here is that I don't really talk about this stuff. Yeah. And this is the deep-rooted problem. Really, it doesn't matter what happened to you as your as an adult because as an adult we're designed to deal with things. Yeah. It's what happened to us as a child and how we dealt with things as a child. Mm. I feel that affects you as you grow older in the way that you do deal with stuff. I mean, you know, when I was going back to myself, when I when I was I remember exactly what film I was watching when the drug dealer jumped through the window wow. and because it was a single pane glass in a, a place called uh, St Leonard's it was a basement floor uh, house wow. and I remember loving this house because I remember the mural outside was Ninja Turtles and at the time <laughs> Ninja Turtles was my thing, you know. I always wanted to be Donatello, oh, wow. and uh, I would run around, you know, with swords, pretending I'm a Ninja Turtle. So, although I grew up with a lot of hate and horribleness, I learned to play games on myself, and I learned, you know, to take things, you know, the freedom that I had that most people didn't have. I had to grow up incredibly quick, um, and that. In a way, you can take some of that as beneficial as you got older. Um, and anyway, I remember distinctly what film I was watching, Hellraiser, which you shouldn't be watching at five years old or six years old. You were five years old. Yeah. Hellraiser. Yeah, it, it, was, it was like 2 a.m. And this guy jumped through and I thought, oh, shit, you know, what am I going to do? And he jumped through the window. He threw me. I mean, this guy was incredibly strong. He threw me across the room. No way, as a five-year-old boy, I could have done anything. You know, he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And he was high on something. You know, I am sure your your time in the police force, you've seen a lot of people do incredible stuff off drugs, you know. Even then, Phil. Yeah. I mean, he was an adult. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he didn't even have to be incredibly strong. Can you no, imagine? no, yeah. And he uh, he picked, I remember him, it was like a, a clip from a movie, I remember him picking up a pane of glass from the floor and he went at my mum and he stabbed her so many times, there's blood everywhere. 
even to this day i still see this you know i still see this in my head oh. very very clearly oh my goodness and as he went up and she put her hand up and the force that he put in it sliced her finger to the point where the bone snapped oh my goodness and i remember hearing her scream vividly like i, I can hear it clear today the scream that she let out oh and um I was holding my mum's head as he left. He ran off. And I was holding my mum's head and I could feel the skull of her head. And uh, very hard to to explain because the whole, the whole neighbourhood were out watching my mum basically bleed to death. And that there, I learned physical violence from that. I was a very angry child. Very, very angry child. Um, the guy got caught. He got arrested. He he gave a lump sum. There was a lump sum gave to my mum. I was carted off to my cousins that I've never met in my life. Wow! And obviously, childhoods, uh, the the um, the social services got involved. But I am so shocked that I never got taken away from that situation. Um, there was a massive disservice there. A massive disservice there. Dude. Where. I was neglected for years before that. Um, and do you know what? Moving forwards from this, um, I, 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 you know, I remember some stuff that was amazing. You know, the summers that I had in Hastings, it wasn't all bad. It was just, the, the you know, that one incident. And then my mum uh, found a new boyfriend that was mentally not sound. Uh, he would bully me, he would, you know, he would try and pick holes in my life. And I've carried that through my life. I mean, you've met me in person, you know that I feel like I need respect, you know, that that is a very important thing in my life and an important thing about me. And I always feel that people don't give me that respect. Um, and I always talk to you about it. I remember, you know, the other day talking about it. Yeah, I feel, I mean, I mean, I just want to go back to this. Yeah. Bill. I mean, you're talking about this. I mean, in your head, it's almost like, yeah, it happened. Yes, indeed, we need to move on. We can't dwell in the past. But, you, I mean, for me, the whole thing is the fact that where you are now, that you had to go through that as a child. You had to go through. And not just that, because if you're, you're born in 19... 19- you were born in 1987 this would have been 1992 i would have been 16 at that time finishing secondary school yeah man yeah was you in england or was you i was here in england yeah Yeah. you can imagine right if you can imagine you're going through that right um now our situation has changed as a family, right? Yeah, go back, explain explain what happened, how you moved from being a child, you know, seeing some abuse to, you know, having to come to England. Do you know, this is this is this is one part. So I've learned so we can talk about trauma and all that, but I can also talk about things that I've learned from my parents. This is one of the most remarkable things about my parents, right? Yeah, you talk very highly of your dad and how yeah. he's learnt he's taught you a lot. I remember you telling me. But explain yeah. a bit about your dad. Explain what sort of character your dad was, and explain the good and explain the bad as well. <laughs> it's, it, um, uh, do we have time? <laughs> I know we're gonna sp- we're gonna be on this for a long period of time. So what I suggest today is just explaining some of the basis of your uh, background, and then we'll move on to how we found fitness after that. 
I mean, honestly, um, l- let me say, okay, my fa- I, like I said, I mentioned my father came from a family of 10. He was what, his story is very simply, he used to uh, sort of like press upon this. He was struggling at school. Yeah. Um, they didn't think he was going to pass. I think it was, um, so you, you, in order for you to transition from primary school, our our primary school stopped at standard eight, and I think in his time it was stopping at standard six. I'm 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 not hundred percent sure. Don't quote me on that. But uh, he was struggling, so his parents were like, "You know what? You need to just go and become a mechanic." Yeah. So you needed to trade. Yeah, yeah. He says you can't do school, and he refused. He was like, "No." You know, he knew what he wanted. So he went through, he went through, passed his exams. He went through to um, uh, junior certificate, which is what uh, you get in Form 2 in Malawi. And then he went on to graduate with uh, his um, uh, MSCE, which is uh, equivalent to what you probably call GCSEs here. Okay. Yeah. But he didn't have enough to go to university. So... What he essentially did then, he joined a job in the government to be a clerk. And he was doing this, well, I think um, he moved from a village in Zomba, where obviously he grew up, to a city, capital city in Lilong. And he got a government job there. But while he was there, what he then did was a applied himself a night school and um, by 1986 the government had sent him to the UK to get his uh, um, to become a chartered auditor for the government um, and once he passed that life really transitioned really quickly by so how did he feel because he obviously come from nothing and worked his way to this really high, quite high-powered job. Mm. Do you feel like that went to his head a little bit? Do you feel like he... Because uh, you said he, you tell me how strong he was as well. You said maybe that's why you're so strong as well, because, you know, you're deadlifting 200 kg and you're, you're a survivor of something that's extreme. Uh, you know, you're stronger than most people your age despite what's happened to you was he a strong man as well did he was he physically strong oh uh, you know so the, the craziest thing is i've seen some photos of my dad right my yeah. dad same height as i am five foot seven and a half you know don't forget uh, the half right yeah. <laughs> yeah don't forget the half <laughs> big factor. but the thing i remember most about my dad is i thought he was the most physically imposing human being i ever met yeah my dad was Superman to me, yeah. but I see him in pictures now, and I've seen myself standing next to him, and I was like, he wasn't that big, but you can imagine as a child, I saw him like larger than life. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, his nicknames were Tarzan, you know. Tarzan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, King of the Jungle. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you told me some stories when you were younger. You, you like, you've seen him in fights and he was just a, a animal, a huge, he, strong human being. He, he was an animal. I mean, you were talking about being five and watching your, what your mum was going through. I was watching my, my, my dad fight police officers. Yeah. After yeah. My, dad fight p- 
people at the pub. Yeah. You know, you know when you've said your mum uh, got a finger cut off by this violent situation. My dad, I watched my dad get his finger almost beaten off in a fight. Oh wow! You know, some guy bit him. <laughs> some guy bit him because because you know, like kind of Terry was, and this was at a pub, and he had taken me to this pub. At five years old, I'm watching this fight. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but back then, it was quite common for kids to hang around pubs where their dads and their mums smoked and drank. And Yeah. I, I remember going into the pub at, like, what, seven or eight, I think. And uh, you got all the characters in there sitting around having a smoke and talking about, you know, labouring and what money they earn and, you know, how they earn it. And it was a real sort of... Uh, uh, so imagine a clip from a movie. I remember walking into this pub and there's old gangsters sitting in there and there's, you know, there's the old boys as well in the corner and it, a room full of smoke that you couldn't breathe in pretty much because it was you were allowed to smoke in those days in pubs, you know. It's insane. I mean, what you're saying there is insane because I grew up knowing all my dad's mates. Literally. Yeah. Because yeah. not only did I did he take me to the pub, he took me to the market, he took me to all the things that he used to do, and then he'd bring ten of his mates at my place and they'll drink, and my mom would be like the servant, you know, like bringing like food and bringing beer, and then when the beer ran out, I couldn't have been more than five or six, and he would send me to go buy more beers. <laughs> it's not even funny, Phil. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, that that in itself, that in itself is leads to again trauma. That that this is normalizing your life. You know, fighting. You know, you were always hungry when you were younger, and then you moved to the UK, and he's obviously got money now. And did that end him drinking, or do you think he still had a drinking problem? Mate, you know what I pro. When I was growing up, I didn't think my dad had a drinking problem. Yeah. I just thought that's what men did. Yeah, they drink beer and have a laugh. <laughs> and I couldn't wait to be old enough to do the same thing my dad did. Oh, there you go. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about, is as children, we see these adults that we look up to. Yeah. And if they have bad habits, you adopt those bad habits because you want to be like them. I couldn't wait to be the best fighter, street fighter of all. Yeah, I wait to be out with my mates, getting drunk, I and thought, earning a name for yourself as yeah, well, right? Yeah, I thought that was the life. I, the uh, much as I idolized my father because of these traits, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be at the pub. I wanted to be able to beat up anyone. That was my mentality. And yeah, tell you what, Phil, I was in horrible fights as a young man man i was fighting from the moment i started to uh, from the moment i went to primary school yeah me too man i I remember i missed huge chunks of school because i was that off the rails that they weren't allowing me to go in a primary school um that you know i i had no rules i didn't I I was like a little animal almost, you know, because I didn't have a dad, a father figure. I only had these people who flicked in and out of my mum's life. I had this horrible stepdad that, you know, used to beat me and torment me almost, you know. Um, And when I went to school, I remember 
some kid annoying me and I took my shoe off and I smacked this kid with my shoe. You know, I would use any weapon, any, I was like a little savage, you know, I'd walk around, I'd walk around. I wouldn't even wear uniform. Um, I was sent home many times primary school because my family wouldn't buy uniform. And, um, where we grew up in Hastings, it, it, it was in a council estate. And I remember vividly, we had a police officer that lived next door to us. And in this council estate, you know, you wouldn't walk around as a police officer. Let's put it this way. You would, you would get yourself murdered if you walked around as a police officer. And I remember one day he came out to, cause of somebody trying to rob his car and they broke his kneecaps. And, wow. and, uh, and, the area that we grew up in, you know, it was normal for groups of teenagers to go around with each other and, you know, be terrorised things, you know, throw eggs at people's windows, smash windows. And, you know, it was a normal thing. Like you saying yourself, you, you couldn't wait to grow up to be a criminal almost. <laughs> Phil, Phil, look, please, please, because I, I know that some people who listen to my podcast uh, Africans and from where I come from yeah I'm trying to push this because I really want like this to go out to people who actually can relate to this because or even can't relate to this and see that there's another world out there oh people... yeah that's a and then, I mean I, that I... that links back to the to like our mental health story I mean we're just at the moment we're just touching on what has gone on in our life to give us the tools to understand that we did have mental health issues yeah so i would like you to explain because some of the people who've lived in uh, and they're still where i grew up just explain to them what a council estate is like because yeah. i probably got a different definition of what you're calling a council estate in terms yeah. of where i've come from explain to what a council estate so a council estate is normally for people who are on the breadline the people who are who can't afford to work or decide not to work there. I mean, I suppose in your country, you, you work to eat. If you don't work, you don't get food. In our country, we're lucky enough, we get benefits. We get, you know, healthcare free. And some of these people are normally, the, you know, not all the council states, but some of these council states are overrun with criminals and people who live on the edge or, or just don't, or play the system they play the system to earn what they want to earn and you know they don't work and you know all these sort of things this is very stereotypical but the state i was on it was high-rise houses that were built for purposely built for people who were on benefits or or you know fell pregnant young and we were lucky enough to get given a house but the problem is is these estates are were built on criminal activities and quite rough people and sometimes they would move people out of london that were causing too much trouble and put them in these estates of of high-rise houses that multiple flats multiple living you know you might have 20 families in one flat one block of flats um and they're all you know good they were good and bad you know they were good and bad parts of, of both and um and yeah, we as kids we all grew up with the groups of boys and groups of girls that were all in the same situation. Had you know parents that abused them, parents that might have you know mistreated them, but also on the flip side, parents that wanted to get out of poverty and and work their way out. 
unfortunately, my family weren't one of them. So if you wanted to get into trouble or you wanted your way into a criminal life, the council estate was a perfect way to get into that that lifestyle. That's 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 in, that's incredible, Phil, because, you know, I, I've told you how much I respect you as, as as a person and how much I've learned over the period I've known you. And um, I mean, we try as much to spend in time just just so we can talk as men, because obviously there's that a lot of that missing in terms of men actually getting together and really chewing the fat and, you know, understanding that we have problems, but it's OK to talk about them. So <laughs> that what you've just explained there, there is just literally for me, my respect has, I mean, has even shot up like other levels because I know what a council estate is and I know from having lived in uh, London Woods and Green, northwest London, I was fortunate when I was living there because my father was a diplomat, he was working for the government. Yeah, we were living in this six bedroom house with lovely. Uh, 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 I was living at the top with uh, in, in a loft, converted loft. But my friends who I was hanging around with, they lived in an area called Stonebridge. This is the typical council estate high rise. Yeah, London, yeah. You know, so when my friends came to my gaff, they were like, what, well, mate, you're rich. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, but yeah. I wasn't, ex- we weren't exactly rich. We were fortunate because my father was, was a diplomat. He, he didn't have to pay council tax he didn't have to pay all the bills like all the other things you know he got paid you know um uh diplomat wage and stuff like that you know not the same kind of money that he would get paid if he was in malawi for example yeah but i remember going to my friend's place you know in kensal rice kensal green in harsden when people were getting stabbed when people were getting shot you know where uh i was at a school where one of the kids brought in rottweilers to chase after their depths of head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 you know what? It's yeah. real, right? Yeah. This is the kind of school I went to. And it's worse now, you know, like, like it's worse as the modern age has gone, gone on. Council estates in the outer skirts are, are much better, but in the inner London, there's people dying every day. There's people getting shot every day. And there's this- people stabbed every day. And this is what I'm talking about. My yeah. table tennis coach got shot outside our table tennis club. Yeah, man. You know, like... I literally, we the, people were stabbing each other at school. You know, yeah. we, we would go play sport and we would have to run uh, run to the bus because if we won that game, it meant that we were, we, you know. <laughs> you were in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were in trouble. So, so. So the the I understand what a council estate is. So I like I'm looking at you and hearing these stories and having been in law enforcement and I have been to these places where people haven't got a post to, a pot to piss in. No, and 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 also police are not respected, right? In Britain, police are not. You you go into a certain council estate, you're you're lucky to get out as a police officer. Um, especially in the inner London, you know, there's some, some areas that you just don't go, right? You drive straight through. Um, as police officers, no-go areas, especially in, in Manchester and places like that. Um, it, it, these these estates are, 
are built from poverty, from people who are breadline, who will fight tooth and nail to get money. And, and although we're not starving, those people who are generally in council states, if they don't work incredibly hard, they stay in those council states and their children stay in those council states and the children's children. And they all grow up with that, those same morals, those same, you know, like, you know, almost like thieve morals, you know, um, I was always told that if someone's chasing you, you just stand there and you take that fight, you take that, that hit. Um, we, luckily enough, moved out of council states because we were having our windows smashed every day. We had a petrol bomb put for our, put for our door. Um, and, you know, we had a kid carrying around air guns, air rifles, and they're shooting our windows with them. Um, and we were lucky to get out of the, the, the council estate and move to the countryside. But the problem is, when I moved to the countryside, I was considered rough, you know. I would go into school and I'd, you know, someone pissed me off, I'd, I, would, I would beat them. You give me the wrong look, I would beat you. And I grew up knowing that that was my life. And how I've changed from that person, I wouldn't even consider violence now. Violence would be the last thing on my list to use um, one, because I was never hard, but two, you know, it doesn't even come into my mind to use violence nowadays. But, but what, what's happened now, Phil, is the fact that you have this character. It's, you, you've, I mean, it's built you, you know, it's in a, it's sad to say that, but, you know, I think every man should be physically imposing. They should be, ready for a fight i'm not saying that you should fight i'm saying you should be ready for a fight because we're living in a, in a dangerous world and you have to have that sixth sense to uh, it, i think what that's giving you is that you now can tell when bullshit is around you yeah man and also I, I i think i've got to an age where i've been beaten up so many times that nothing's ever fair anymore right you know you, you it's not just fists anymore you know when you're a kid it was just fists and you know as you got an older you realize i mean i, I think when i was 22 i grew up in a quite a posh area after you know leaving the horrible areas and as i grown up in posh areas posh areas still have bad areas you know they still have people that are horrendous you know of course i mean i've seen a lot of you know i've grew up in royal tunbridge wells which if anybody knows where that is, it's it's stamped by the Queen as a very posh area. But there are some really horrible areas there as well. I know the place really well. <laughs> yeah, and um, I was I was homeless when I was fifteen for six months, and I've seen how people treat each other and how mental health deteriorates in people, um, being rock bottom to where you you're begging for money. You know, you didn't didn't have anybody. I got to a point in my life where I couldn't hack my family anymore. My mum had very bad mental, she had schizophrenia and bad mental health problems. And it was at that point at 14, 15, where I remember waking up one day and my mum had a cricket bat and she was just about to smash my head in with this cricket bat. And she was talking to herself. She thought she was a witch. Oh my she, God. She thought she could part the clouds and oh bring my. the sunshine out. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, like, my goodness. Yeah. Her mental health was so poor from years of 
abuse and drug abuse and you know and i'm sure she she saw what she saw fit for me as a child um she tried her best you know from what mental state she was in um and that uh, that that was a turning point for me i remember all my friends saying you gotta get out of that house because you're gonna end up dead phil like she's talking to to the walls and you know and as a child you don't know what to talk about you don't how how do you tell somebody this um and um being homeless for six or seven months really taught me how the world can be really really mean you know uh just because you're homeless doesn't mean you're helpless you know it doesn't mean everybody who's homeless have gone through drugs and and you know they don't haven't all done bad things this is another thing that i opener in britain everybody walks past these homeless people and they go oh yeah he must have been a bum he, he deserves to be there or you know but the, the the general consensus with people, we don't care about other people. We only care about ourselves. And um, it's very sad to see that, even in today's world. I mean, we're we not far off. Um, I mean, nobody's really far off being a homeless. And... You're right. Yeah, 100% right. You're a couple steps away always. Yeah, because, because uh, I mean, for me, what you're saying, I mean, Phil, this is such... <laughs> I mean, these these are such harrowing stories, and for me, talking to you right now, and I'm thinking the best thing out of this that we're actually here alive talking about this because some yeah. people don't survive these traumas. Oh, massively! And the thing is, like you're saying, we I never knew that I had an issue. I only knew when I was thirty. I'm give you an example now. I'm thirty seven. I only knew when I was 30, I had an issue with mental health. So I've lived all that life, all that lifespan, thinking it's normal to sit in the dark or make excuses or lie about your situation. I used to lie through my through my teeth about, oh, yeah, I'm ill and I'm sick and I'm this and I'm that. And actually, I was just, I was mentally ill. I was broken. And it took a really bad... Uh, you know, relationship with a girl that had mental health issues herself to realize that two people with mental health issues, they don't work very well together. Um, and if anything, it exacerbated my own issues. I remember I was working as a personal trainer. Let's go to you uh, for a bit, Harry, and tell me how you got into fitness and how fitness has helped your mental health and when you realized that you had a problem. <laughs> Phil, uh... <laughs> It's a difficult one to even pinpoint myself personally, you know, um, because all throughout this, all throughout all of this, all of this, I can honestly say that I didn't think I, I had any issues, you know, uh, through fighting. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I should be disclosing this, but I fought people with weapons. Yeah. You know, um, hurt people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, really badly. You know, um, but also fighting your 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 what you what you've gone through. You know, fighting for your life. Yeah, um, and and to be honest with you, I've always you the way you see me when I'm happy and I'm laughing, I'm joking. Yeah, in most of my life, Phil. You know, even those times I'm, I'm telling you about this, I, I didn't, it didn't take me long to come back to la this kind of Harry that you know, that's laughing, yeah. 
talking and stuff like that. And my life has honestly been like that until literally after my operation, my liver transplant operation. Yeah, let's explain a little bit about that, buddy. What 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 went on, and I'm guessing that's when you found out you had mental health issues as well. I mean, simply, obviously, it's really important to just sort of explain because as soon as you say liver disease, people think, "Oh, you're an alcoholic," or you know, yeah, yeah, you know, or what you're I mean? drugged. You've been doing yeah. drugs, yeah, yeah, using drugs and that. That's not my case. You know, I have or had a rare disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis which is a rare liver disease which only only a few thousand people in the UK have this disease wow and wow. i didn't know and the worst part about this is i've had this since i was 14 but doctors just didn't know do their due diligence unfortunately yeah. Because I first became jaundiced at the age of 14. Wow. Um, I was at school. I was a sporty kind of kid. I've gone to Wales on a, on a school trip. I've come back. I play 20 minutes of football. I can't run. I can't breathe. I'm struggling. Next minute, I'm at the doctor's. The doctor says, your boy's got jaundice. Uh, so it took me six months to recover from that. Um um, and they said I had hepatitis B. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, obviously, years later, I was tested. I said, you never had hepatitis B. So, so, so they it, got it wrong, basically. So they got it wrong, basically. You know, they advised that back then. What they should have done is they should have done a liver biopsy. They should have given me a proper diagnosis. That was never done. Um, all they done was do some blood tests and that was it so they sent me back home and as a young man I carried on doing the normal thing of drinking, going to parties <laughs> yeah. you know it wasn't until I was about 27, 28 I started feeling a certain way and I just started feeling bad and so I'd gone through years, I'd gone, I'd gone to my GP and explained to my GP that I was feeling tired and the GP would just say, oh, maybe you're depressed, you know. Maybe depressed, you yeah. Yeah, and give you anti antibiotics. It wasn't until I met a really great GP. I think he was just starting out in his practice. And he was very enthusiastic. And when I explained to him that I'd come off the football field, I think I was 30 then. And, and when you were really strong, 30-year-old, you was very lean. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what was you? what was you deadlifting back then? Um. Oh, I was insane, man. I mean, two fifty was. Oh, you. I, I could eat two fifty for breakfast, you know. So two fifty is like that's nearly five hundred pounds, right? Yeah, yeah. You know. And, and how I, much did you weigh back then? Oh man, I was. Oh, I, I. I mean, it's ridiculous. I think maybe most, maybe seventy-seven, seventy-eight. So you was really more like three times your body weight, sort of I mean, deadlifting. I was. I, I was. Freak, to be honest, I was mm. a freak. I didn't realize it. I thought that was normal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I honestly thought that was normal. So I was, was a freak. And then I'd come, I'd come in, and I said to the doctor, I said, I just feel tired. I can't do anything. My lifting is awful. Everything is just really bad. And he was like, This is not right. He sent me to um, uh, to get checked out straight away. 
uh, the doctor and the doctor was really bad as well because um, without even diagnosing diagnosing me properly, he said you've got liver disease and you've got less than five years to live, and wow. that was that was it. That's what he said. Wow. And there I am sitting there with a young wife. I've got my kids about four, five, five and six or something like that, and that's it. You know. Um. And then, obviously, all the work was done properly, and I was—I uh, think—in 2013, I was—I was then diagnosed properly, and I was told I had this pro, uh, primary school rising conjunctitis, and the only way out of it, I would need a liver transplant at some point. Fortunately enough, in 2021, uh, I believe I got my transplant, and. Um, which absolutely changed my life. Wow. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, going through the transplant itself, I remember watching your Instagram videos and thinking, shit, you're not right. Like, I remember watching you waiting for your transplant. Mm. And almost like you had some split personality going on there. Mm. Would you say that's correct? Phil, I was, I was living day by day. You thought you was a ninja, didn't you? <sighs> It was after, obviously, it was after, <laughs> after, yeah. after I had the operation. So what happened was simply the, um, the drugs or the opioids, if you think about it, yeah? Yeah. You know, so I'm on morphine, I'm on... Uh, everything, yeah. Everything, anti-rejection drugs, I'm on 40 milligrams of um, uh, oral steroids. You know, prednisolone, which are synonymous with uh, um, inducing psychosis. Yeah, yeah, and that's what 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 made you turn into sort of somebody else. Did you think that that's how that's the main reasons? I, I literally, I became psychotic while I was in hospital. Yeah, because the first thing I, I can only now, but when I look back, I can then go. Oh my days! I was out of it. I, yeah. I was hallucinating. Yeah, yeah. Really bad hallucinations. You know, I, I could, I, I could picture myself on the ceiling as if I was Spider Man, and I'm watching, <laughs> I'm watching myself in a third person. I'm in my bed, and people are partying in my hospital room. Wow. The wow. doctors are partying. Everyone's partying, and I'm like. Why am I not invited to this party? And why is everyone partying in my room when I'm sleeping down there? And then <laughs> I'm a spider up on the ceiling watching myself. <laughs> wow. So they really they really screwed with your mind. And what happened after that? Did you you did explain to me that you got, you know, put into a mental health ward. Um was that one of the first cases you realised that you were you had not only mental health issues, you had PTSD and anxiety? Oh no, no, that came after Phil. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, seventeen days later, they've sent me back home, and this is what I find really difficult because well, you had open surgery, didn't you? They basically removed something from your body and put another thing in, and they sent you back home. Yeah, so 17 days later, at the heart of lockdown, I'm in my own home, and I guarantee you, my mood, my family can tell, my daughters can tell, my sister can tell, 
my everybody, then, everybody my, close to you, yeah, yeah. My then ex could tell, but I couldn't. I have, have got this fractured mind, and I'm paranoid. I think everyone's talking about me, and, <laughs> and my ex tells me now that I would shout at her. One minute I'll be laugh- loving, I'll be joking, and next minute I'm shouting at her, and and I'll, I'll, I, apparently I would say things like, "Oh, I bet you you're enjoying this," like looking at me, all hopeless and help weak, yeah, weak, you know. And that was the really hard thing for me because. Do you think that sometimes that's part of deep down in your subconsciousness because you're such a strong human being? Do you think that's what what drives you to be stronger? Is that you have a deep subconscious of worrying about people thinking you're weak oh yes 100 percent, phil i mean yeah. i mean me too i me mean too. for me um and you see me what i'm like when we're training i yeah. just have to push and have to push and we're animals yeah yeah and sometimes i know that even that that's not healthy but there's something inside me that just does not want to feel weakness well, that's actually what I, what I wanted to bring up is when I found out I had mental health issues and I was, you know, I was going for a, a, a break, a breakdown that I never thought I would ever do. Because I always used to look down on those people that said they had depression. Oh, yes. I used to think Thanks. they're all just a bunch of fannies. And... Mate, I'm, I'm there with you. Yeah. And it only took me have this really bad breakdown where I was on the bridge and I was ready to go ready to jump wow. and a dog walker stopped me and said you're a young lad you've got a lot to live for you don't need to do this I got my CBT my cognitive therapy behavior I threw myself into my workouts I tell you what I was like a, a demon like somebody completely different and I was working out three times a day four times a day and I knew it was wrong Phil, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah, we both know. We both know that sometimes working out can be another way of harming yourself, right? But mm-hmm. harming yourself in, but at the same time feeling good from it. Like you know, like people who self harm who cut themselves. It's they, the exact, they get that endorphin rush from it. It's the exact same thing. Wanting to feel good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you're so scared you're so afraid your life is painful and you want something to make you feel good yeah and eventually that feeling runs runs low dude i mean uh i was think i was working out two three times a day i was eating all on point and it's the thing is that exercise is the only thing you can really control in your life the only thing that you can have mastery over um there's, there's it's very predictable exercise is predictable food is predictable you 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 can control those things your emotions you can't control so by having something in your life that you can control when you're going through a breakdown you can tell when people are not right and that's when they start to try and control things some people use drugs some people use sex some people use alcohol alcohol yeah uh, some people have erratic behavior. For me, it was throwing myself into the fitness side of stuff. And I was, as a kid, I was always overweight, always extremely overweight, always body con- body conscious. And I remember 
when I started exercise and I started exercise when I lived in the YMCA, when I, when I just become homeless and I, someone found me a place in a hostel and I made that my home. I started exercising then to lose weight. But before that I was a boxer and I used to box like, you know, three, four times a week that helped me lose a lot of weight. But my real journey into the gym, going to the, I remember the first time I went to the gym, and it was like something else in my life. It almost fitted a puzzle in my life. I know what I wanted to do. I knew what my purpose was. Um, because when I was in, in uh, the YMCA, West Kent YMCA, uh, in a hostel, I, you know, I spent most of my teen slash midlife there. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do as work. And I remember taking six months in a commercial gym and I worked for free for six months and they paid for my first gym instructor award at 17. And I knew then exactly what I wanted to do in life. That's insane. Um, But yeah, coping mechanisms for mental health. I mean, I think working out is a good one because it gives you routine, but also it can be a double-edged sword at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, seriously, I, <laughs> I suffered while I was pre-transplant because I was training too much. I was trying to lose weight and um, uh, so much so that, yeah, I got shredded. Yeah. I got did, that, did that help you? I, I got to about 12, 12, 10% body fat, wow. but it was bad because someone whose liver is failing yeah yeah and i'm also restricting my diet (laughs) and then i'm training doubly hard and guess what happened i ended up with um you call it meiosis um oh what's the word for it you know where you overtrain and you have that you know your organs start to you know struggle oh okay yeah you know your kidneys etc um, is is it uh, what CrossFitters get when they when they overtrain? Uh, I'm, I'm meiosis or something. Like that. I can't I can't really remember the the technical term, but I I had Rab- that. rhabdodialysis. A rhabdo rhabdo rhabdomyosis. Yeah, yeah, and that happened to me. Imagine, right? Which I'm is very so, rare. It's like, you I'm, have to train extremely hard to get to that exactly. point. Exactly. So I was training extremely hard when my liver was failing, at the height of my liver failing. Not just that, I'm working in the police at the time. I'm <laughs> working really hard. Yeah. You know. So And that, not... that falls down to how important recovery is, right? We don't respect recovery enough, especially those people who who want to go balls deep onto training, like exercise wise. Um, I've, I've very commonly come across people who think that they need to do seven, eight days a week to get to where they need to, to get to. Um, and you know why they think that is mainly because they want it fast. They think by doing more, they're going to get this fast result. This, it's, 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 it's difficult because you, you know, the, way I'm, the way I'm talking about where we're talking about this trauma effect that we have, yeah. where we're talking about this bit of self-harming that's also self-harming because you actually almost you're almost like in this phase where 
you know that this is wrong, but you think you can get these results, but then it's a cycle. It becomes a cycle. Yeah. And and what happens, especially with people who are training so much, you have this, your muscles start to deteriorate. Yeah. You know? Definitely. And 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 you 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 think that because they're deteriorating you think that what you're doing is not enough so essentially you want to do even more yeah yeah so you're looking in the mirror you're going oh shit it's just not working i must put more in yeah when actually you should be taking taking a sit sit back Mm, and mm. not putting as much effort in and as Mm. much Mm. Uh, focus because let's be honest exercise should complement our life it shouldn't be our life it should complement everything in our life you know it should help us out with finding who we are it should give us guidelines on how to push and where to push but it shouldn't be the only thing in our life we need to not get obsessive with everything we do and I find those people who've been through trauma we do get obsessive about things we do uh because we don't know how to control it any other way you know it's our escapism you know i i 100 agree i'm thinking i have my biggest problem now if i if i look at my life really and be critical about myself i have a really terrible competitive nature <laughs> and the worst part about it is okay now i'm aware that i was so competitive now because i have always say i'm my own competition now i'm too much of my own competition yeah yeah do you feel the same way i feel like i'm always comparing myself to others which is a I tell everybody not to do right as a trainer as a personal trainer and somebody who's been to university and stuff like that I've never competed with others but I've always compared myself with others I've always felt that I am not enough and um and that I look at others and I go well I want to look like that and for me I'm not competitive in the sense that um I want to beat them. I just want to be them, which is different, right? Mm. I don't care about beating somebody, but I would like to be somebody else sometimes. And I think that falls down to, you know, childhood problems, you know, having self-image problems. Uh, So I can relate to some of the people that come through my door as personal training who have got image problems because I can relate completely to that. I've got clients in their 50s that have, uh body issues you know they look at themselves and they don't see anything good about themselves so i can relate to that i can pull that apart in terms of training wise i don't see i see it as a as a ways to a means to an end i when i'm with you i train extremely hard so yeah i must have a competitive side to me Mm. um yeah no i definitely definitely have a competitive side it's that maybe i've not explored it before because i've never been in anything in my life where other than business I, that's another thing for me business i have i am super competitive in business mm. in mm. training not so much but in business i remember walking into snack fitness mm. and there's 10 trainers in there and i want i look at the top trainer and i go i'm gonna beat that person mm. and i will do everything in my business sense my mind i've got a good business acumen like I can pretty much sell. If I'm talking to somebody, I can sell mm. to them. 
that mm. that is some that's one gift i say i've got in life is the ability to sell but also the ability to produce and believe in people mm. I, I, I mean that that's really interesting phil because we've gone full circle we've gone from all of these traumas to becoming this somebody who's super competitive somebody who wants to compare themselves uh not compare themselves but who wants to be someone else yeah i i mean i can share some parallels like for me i don't want to be someone else i want to be the best yeah and and my biggest problem is when i think i can't be the best at something i quit which I think is very common in those new people that come to us as PTs. Mm. They come through the door thinking they're going to be brilliant at deadlift or they're going to mm. be brilliant at dieting. Mm. Um, and let's be honest, it's fucking hard. It's not easy stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, these people have gone from being out of weight, no habit, no routine. Mm-hmm. Um, they work too much. They eat too much. Mm. They party too much. They mm-hmm. have this lifestyle and they think, overnight they're gonna change that and when it when they start to realize they're not going to be the best they mm. do what you said you do is they kind of just fall back into their shell and, and and this is this is the thing this is the thing that's really hard for me as a trainer as a coach as a teacher as a mentor it's really hard because this is exercise is the only thing that i've never quit at yeah sport yeah. is the only thing i've never quit at and the reason being, and I'll, I'll explain this to you really quickly, Phil, and everyone else who's listening, is that as far as I can remember, you put me in a sporting, physical environment. I developed so quick. Yeah. And yeah. it's something in my inner nature to be super competitive that I want to catch you up and then I want to destroy you by being better than you within a short period of time. Yeah. yeah. But that's only to do with physical things. Yeah. 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 I academically, I freeze. Yeah. I it's f- like when you talk to me about your business and, yeah. uh, and systems and stuff like that, you, that's where your weak point is, isn't it? It's, oh, it's, it's oh, uncomfortable for you, but you're learning now. You're getting on top of it. It's so uncomfortable for me. So uncomfortable that for me to be even to be successful, I reach, literally have to have someone else doing that side of things for yeah. me. Yeah. Because, like, for me, I, I guarantee you, uh, big, being a teacher, being a tutor, being a trainer, being a coach, I can work on that and I know that I can I can push and push be better and better. But when it comes to something that I have to do that's academic, that's to do with I don't know, it really fries my mind so bad that it makes me not want to do the thing I love most, to teach, to coach. Because you feel like you can't be the best without that side. That's right. Uh, I see. So this is the thing about coaching, right? For any personal trainers that are listening to us, I started coaching and I was such a severely dyslexic human being. I still am, obviously. um, That I used to remember, I remember practicing with my ex-girlfriend before I did my gym instructor award. Um, 
I was practicing writing people's names because I was so embarrassed that I couldn't spell somebody's name. Wow. I used to sit there and I used to go for a workbook with her and she said, look, write Jamie, write Dick James, write this, write that. And it's these uncomfortable moments that we have is where we grow the most. Yeah. Um, for me, when I went to university and I started writing dissertation, that uncomfortable moment was so uncomfortable that my hands are sweating and I'm getting clammy. I'm, I'm getting stressed out. And even today, I still get stressed out about these things. But I know for me to grow as a human being, I need to use, utilize my weaknesses and I need to push those weaknesses. And it's exactly the same we do with, 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 uh, with new clients that come through the door. We know that they, when they go to a gym environment, we don't hide them away upstairs in a studio. We don't hide them in a cardio area because you're only fueling your weaknesses. You're only going, oh, it's okay not to be in that situation. And that's what I love about you, Harry, is that you've took it upon yourself not to just hand it to somebody else. You have paid for a course to learn. Yeah, You're facing your weaknesses head on, although you might not see it, and you feel like quitting and you feel like going, I'll pay somebody else to do it. You still need a good understanding of these business systems for, for you to know that other people are doing the right job for you. And if you don't understand that, then paying somebody, you could be paying, you could be losing money on somebody who's absolutely rubbish, but should just selling you a package. Trust, trust me, I've already lost money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 I think I I think that's really good and and uh, I mean I would just like to take that back into in terms of training clients and clients and and I see a lot of clients go mm, well you know I can go and do it myself or you know and I always think but you couldn't do it yourself before yeah so what why can you do it now what makes you think you're gonna be able to do it that and then it's not just that. Uh, it's not just that for me. I'm thinking of uh, of a CEO of my business, accountant of my business, but I'm also thinking about the regression that you're gonna have, and then you have to restart again when you've made for a whole year. You've made such incredible progress, and so much so that you uh, you thinking that going on your own on uh, on this journey is going to be uh, what actually is going to uh, uh, you're going to be able to transition into just becoming like, unless you develop that habit now and that habit that you're still going to be pursuing learning i you're just shooting yourself in the foot because yeah and also how many people do you get in the door you've explained the workout to you explain the exercise into detail and then you've got asked them a question about it and they've they've gone i don't know how, i don't know what you're talking about mm. like how many people switched on in your pt session i mean for me it's only a select few people mm. that are actually truly switched on in that pt session mm. and and even the ones that aren't switched on, when they get a good result and then mm. they decide that they're going to leave, mm. I can tell those people are going to quit in three, four, five months' time on their own, even a week on their own, because I've asked that those same people, okay, I've just explained the squat to you. How many reps did I say we're going to do? Mm. And they've gone, uh... And this is the thing, being on board with what you're doing is super important. And like you've said, just there educating yourself and taking ownership 
if you decide to go on your own after all this experience that you've experienced with your trainer, do you really honestly think you're going to push yourself as hard as that trainer's pushed you? I, I think a lot of this, um, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking just like even from being outside, like, for example, myself, training with yourself, myself, acquiring a coach, you know, uh, having an online coach, etc. you know, acquiring a uh, one-on-one coach as, as well myself personally. It's I have a need to keep learning. Yeah. I've been training for 31 years and I still, every single day, I'm still trying to learn. I'm still trying to develop. I'm still trying to look at the new methods of training out there. And yeah. I think that's what a lot of people forget, that this is what a, a PT is. It's somebody who has to keep refreshing their knowledge. They need to keep learning. Yeah. Uh, and and. and and because we are still hungry, we're hungry for this knowledge, we, uh, we'll get to 60, 70, we'll still be trying. Learning, yeah. You know, and I, and I think this is what the lay person forgets, that, you know, you can't just stay linear because linear will stop getting your results at some point, you know. Yeah, yeah 100% that. And um, also investing in understanding what you're doing you don't have to work you don't have to come out sweating your nuts off that's another thing like going to a class and going to a pt two completely different things right Mm -hmm. going to a class you're you're getting instructed you're not getting taught Mm -hmm. going to a pt you're getting taught the processes that you need to learn Mm -hmm. that you can take in any gym in the world Mm -hmm. you can walk into a pure gym in Africa or mm. America mm. and you will know how to squat press pull whereas you go to a class ask 90% of the class after class how many reps did they do mm. what exercises did you exactly do what mm. order did you do and I guarantee you none of them will remember only the instructor will know that <laughs> exactly and even then from week to week the intensity will be different depending on the instructor right I'm- so you might go to a class wanting to lose weight and you think, right, I'm going to spin class to lose weight. Mm. But the instructor is not thinking what you need to do to lose weight. And you shouldn't be going to do exercise just to lose weight. You should be mm. going to get stronger, fitter mm. and healthier mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to lose weight, let's talk about your nutrition. Let's talk about your, your daily activity. Are you moving into day-to-day life? Because I've got so many clients that go to the gym three days a week and they work freaking hard in those three days a week. Mm. But outside of the gym, they're doing nothing. They're sitting because they've got desk jobs, right? Mm. So their outside activity is just that the three hours that they spend in the gym is just combating what they don't do outside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's what's terrifying, Phil. The biggest, most terrifying thing is we are living in such a competitive world in terms of financial, yeah. um, you know, uh, comparability. We're living in such a competitive world because nowadays we only, we don't even have to look outside to see someone else who we think is better than us. So we just have to open our social media and we're going to see millions of people who all of a sudden we think they're better than us, they're better than us. Right. So the, our lives have changed. Um, we don't move enough anymore. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. We've lost, like, when do you see people running? You see them out on the weekend as a leisurely activity. Mm. And even then, we're born to run. And the the craziest thing there... We're losing our natural instincts to run and walk. People considered walking now as exercise. Walking Mm. is what we're designed to do. We've got legs for a reason. Mm. But we can, with a flick of our phone, we can order our shopping to our door. Mm. We can order takeaway to our door. We can see our friends through our phone. Yep. We can talk to our friends millions of miles away, face to face. We don't have to walk to their doors. No. I mean, when I was a kid, you get your friends knocking at your door. Mm. They've had to walk from their house to your door. Yeah. Now we could just, you know, we can video each other. We can, we're losing these, these, soon we're just going to be brains and heads moving. You know, we're not going to need to do anything else. We're getting into a scary, scary place here. Especially here in the first world. Yeah. Well, what, what, do you, what do you associate with work? Like, when I associate work, I think physical. I think moving. I think, you know, using your brain whilst you're moving. I don't think sitting at a desk. For me, I didn't get into the fitness industry to sit at a desk. And now my job's slowly becoming sitting at a desk. It, it, you know? It's incredible what you... What you what you're talking about, and this is just to sh- just to emphasize that I'm doing this podcast here. I'm standing up. I'm moving around. It's this is a kind of strange thing. It's because I hate to sit down. Yeah, and one of the reasons I struggle with doing this business systems is because I have to sit down. You know. Yeah, you have I, to type, I, and you I, have to. I hate having to sit down. You know, one of the things I loved about being in the police was the fact that I would go out to jobs. Yeah. I would go out on the street. I would go out and deal with something outside. I would have to run after someone. But the moment I have to be sitting down and doing a job, for me, it feels like I'm wasting myself. I have so much energy as a human being, as 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 a person, that sitting down for me just does not an option for me the moment i'm sitting down it means that i have to go to sleep yeah that's true right yeah true to life and like i think we definitely have inbuilt into us like i was saying this yesterday to somebody i was saying i was watching a documentary on um, hunter gatherers in the amazon yeah and they had these researchers that went out and they were following the lifestyle of these people in the Amazon. And the researchers were getting up in the morning early to go for a run. And the Amazon tribes were looking at them like, are you mental? Mm. Why are you doing this? Mm. And it's because we are lazy human beings. Mm. Those people in the Amazon, they're hu- the only reason they run is to catch their food. Mm. It's work for them. Yeah. Mm. Mm. whereas we've lost that we've mm. lost that connection between mm-hmm. what real work is and, mm. and you know money is our currency not food mm. um happiness is linked to our money as currency oh, um, which is is a, a fagazi right it's a it's a i get people who come to me with uh, millions and millions and millions yeah and are they happy no are they unhealthy? Yes. Are they moving a lot? No. Because they're working from their phone, by the desks, by they're not what we could, what physically designed for work for. I I, I we're, 
I, I just turn on my YouTube sometimes or my Instagram. Someone is trying to sell you how to earn money just sitting down. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's what everyone's selling. And everyone is selling you a dream of becoming a millionaire now. Yeah. Every, everyone wants you to be a millionaire. They're telling you, you know what? Become a millionaire. You know, you just invest in this. You know, get this app. You know, um, <laughs> Do you know why that is, though? It's because of social media. It's because of the internet. Because I remember when the internet first came out, yeah. the only time you knew somebody was rich is if their car was really nice. That's right. And you would only see a Rolls Royce once in a year mm. or a Lamborghini once every blue moon, you know. Mm. Mm. But now we see millionaires every day. Mm-hmm. We see how it supposedly be easy to become a millionaire Mm. um it's like i I always compare it to a computer game like i feel sometimes that i've quite not leveled up my life enough to earn this money that's supposedly making people happy but i don't truly believe that is true because when we hit lockdown do you know what my mental health in lockdown was better than ever before yeah and i've solely put that down to nature I took my life and I started walking more. I started spending time with my family. I started actually focusing on what I eat and taking love and time and care into my food. And when we care about stuff, instead of chasing the dream, we bring back that sense of, I feel, our hunter-gatherer side, right? I feel like you never look at an Indian person or, or you never look at people who are in poverty and when they're the most happiest they're eating mm. they respect everything they do i'm i mean <laughs> phil i i was talking to my brother uh, mm. and um when i was talking to him um you know they at the moment my sister had has had to queue two days to get fuel um, oh but- really wow what out in zimbabwe no, Malawi. Malawi, sorry. Yeah, he's um, she she had to two two days she was queuing up, sleeping at a uh, uh, petrol station. No way. Yeah, and and this is how bad things things are, and um, I was thinking, and 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 I'm just trying to say it to 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 sort of like explain this point of having this mind of chasing this, you know, want to be a millionaire or whatever it is, you know, um, we'll push to, you know, buy a lottery ticket because, you know, you could be a millionaire because that brings you happiness, right? The reality of it, Phil, is that the more money you have, the more you start to spend, yeah? The more things that you get, the more things that you want to buy. The, the, your happiness is only for me now I see happiness as having close friends and having loving family having loving friends because I never 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 you I used to be I used to be that guy and I was I was obsessed even when I was back home my dream was always to be a millionaire and I was, I, I, and, and recently I asked myself this question. And some of the, uh, the, the stupid decisions I've made in life, where I've lost, I don't know, a couple thousand quid or three thousand quid or whatever, 
it's been over making really bad investments because I'm wanting to get quick wins. Yeah, yeah. You Someone know? sold you the quick, the quick fix. Yeah, somebody is never true. Quick fix, and that brought me such sadness <laughs> because I, <laughs> I, 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 I was like, oh my days, I've just been bamboozled. But then, but then it's that anxiety, that fear, that wanting of something which, you know, I look at my life now. I have two incredible daughters. Yep. You know, I'm still amicable with my 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 ex partner. You know, um got friends like yourself i've got friends who i can call anytime one day to have a joke with or laugh with and stuff like that i've got my health and i'm telling you right now me becoming the millionaire the only things that will change is that i will not have to worry about my bills and i can go and travel anywhere in the world but other than that not much will change yeah that's true that's 100 true i i i mean i've mentally exhausted myself trying to chase the dream of owning a stu- owning a gym or owning this and owning that and i soon i realized more now than ever that actually maybe that wouldn't make me happy because i only chased that dream to make money i didn't chase that dream because it was my dream my dream is to always get a good result help people be humble and always have my health always to be able to train and have time for myself to spend with my dogs, with my family. And I've got pretty much 90% of that right now. I've got most of my, my, my dreams now, you know, I'm getting married. I'm, I've never thought I would have love for, for a family. I never thought I'd have love for children. I never thought I'd have love for, you know, animals. Um, because when I was younger, I was very bitter and a very, uh, negative human being and now i've flipped that around into not being a victim of my life and moving past because i can't change the past i can only change the future right and you've got to see not too far into the future at least day by day as 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 a as a challenge i see every day i try to make someone happy or smile or whether that may may be me being a dick you know like making a dick of myself or or uh or you know, I've got I've got to make someone happy. That's my job for today: is to make somebody smile, have a laugh, and and you know, cherish the time that I have. Listen, bro. I mean, honestly, I think that's a great place to end because yeah, I am I agree. all I'm saying to you right now, and this is now my goal every single day. What you're saying there is, I'm in pursuit of. I'm not in pursuit of happiness. Yeah? Yeah. Because happiness is fleeting. I'm in pursuit of peaceful life, a joyful life, a blissful life, and a life full of love. And when I say life full of love, I'm talking about love of my friends, love of what I do as a job, as a means to make an earning, love of my family, and love for this world that we're in, this planet that we're on. And that's my pursuit now. 100% man. And I mean, this has been a very long podcast, this one, but the next one we'll talk more about our fitness journeys, what we've done ourselves, and how we can help you guys get fitter, stronger, faster. Amazing. Amazing.
Well, it's been good chatting to you, bud. And let's leave it there. That's it. For anyone who's out there listening, remember, respect yourself, love each other, and always, always keep fit because health is wealth. I 100% agree, buddy. And remember, go and give him a like over on his page. I'll put the links below. And uh, don't forget to add the Sweet Spot podcast. And I'm out. Bye, mate. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.